Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today, my, my friend, my neighbor, my friend of me, my co-host, Mr. Mark Daly. But that's good news because we have the one, the only, Mr. Sam Cooper representing Planet F1. Mr. Sam, how the heck are you, my friend? I'm doing really well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. It's always, always a pleasure to join you. How are you, how are you doing? I'm doing amazing. And, you know, before we kind of kicked off this podcast, we were catching up a little bit on the side, but I'm going to challenge you here and now. So if the listeners don't know, you grew up in a county in England called Mm -hmm. Devon. And I also grew up in a county in England called Devon, but you grew up in Mm -hmm. North Devon. I grew up in South Devon. Give me a 30% business case or 30 second business case as to why North Devon beats South Devon. Oh, it's easy. Do you like beaches? We've got beaches. Like, it's the best place for beaches. <laughs> like, I think in the whole of the UK. So, like, for those who don't know, Devon's like, if you imagine the UK, like, bottom, bottom left is that's where sort of Devon is, like, little shoe kind of bit. That's down there. But yeah, like, you've got the best beaches in the UK there. Like, all sand, glorious, not too busy, like, because it's quite far away from London and stuff like that. But yeah. That's what that's what that's what I'd tell you on beaches. So my business case was also beaches. Oh, no. <laughs> I I wrote down some notes and and what's interesting about Devon is the the north side of Devon uh, is on the ocean looking up across mm-hmm. towards Ireland and the south part of Devon is on the ocean looking south towards towards France. But I would argue the same thing. I would say the South Hams, which is some of the most beautiful, protected, uh, regulated. Uh, farming area in the country, just beautiful, beautiful, natural, natural scenery. It feels like when you visit a lot of these villages, it feels like you've stepped back 50, 100, 150 years. And the councils do everything they can to protect that for good or bad. But I would argue that the beaches. So I think we are in agreement that overall, beaches are one of the main selling features of the county of Devon. That is 100% right. Yeah, you're not going to get much more. Yeah, beaches are the perfect place. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. How's everything else? How's work? I know you have been so busy because not a day goes by where I don't see a couple of stories slide into my mailbox from planetf1.com. Have you been staying busy so far in this very early season? Yeah, it's, it's getting difficult now. Now that we're, what is it, three weeks away, four weeks away from the last race? So yeah, news is wearing a bit thin. But I was lucky enough to actually go to Silverstone yesterday. So that was a fun day out, just sort of a, a press trip up there. Like, I don't know if you know, but Silverstone have got a hotel next to the track. So 
the people who run the hotel invited us down. So yeah, we didn't get to drive unfortunately, but I got taken around in a McLaren doing ridiculous speed. So I think my neck still hurts, and it was only a few laps. <laughs> so I can imagine why these race drivers have such thick necks. But yeah, looking forward to the actual racing getting started again this time next week. I, I I'd seen on your social media, probably your Instagram, that you were at Silverstone, and I I meant to ask. So thank you for uh, for sharing. How does the track look? I, I know it's still relatively early in the calendar, but uh, it was good. How was the hotel? I know that there is a hotel at the track how is it from a presentation and accommodation perspective a pretty good stay oh yeah it's unbelievable like um it's very new i think it's only opened sort of the last year and like just the views you get so like they do like different packages for the race weekend and like you can be on the rooftop which is good because you can see sort of the whole grid but then if you go lower down you can like see right into the to the paddocks really into the garages so imagine, i can just imagine like doing a race a race week when we see like ferrari and red bull and all that lot working in while you're sipping on some nice or having some nice canapes having a nice some nice cocktail so yes probably not not a better place to watch chef one i'd imagine that's so cool to hear it's it's interesting too because if you haven't been to silverstone and and i'm sure most of our listeners probably haven't i although i i highly regard it as one of the best experiences on the entire f1 calendar it it's interesting because it's kind of positioned halfway between london London and Birmingham, which are two of the bigger metro areas in in the country. So it's pretty accessible as a day trip. But if you're coming from somewhere farther than those two places, it is very rural. I mean, you're probably 30, 40 minutes away from Milton Keynes, so you can stay in Milton Keynes and drive in every day. Um, It's probably 30 minutes away, maybe a little bit less to Bister. So there's some options, but I think for a lot of people, it's just a matter of camping, and I think a lot of people do camp that weekend. But I think it is very, very cool that they're building up some on-track or immediately adjacent to the track accommodation. So that's that's pretty cool to to hear. How would you, and obviously, Obviously, you're going to be a little bit biased, but how do you rank Silverstone compared to some of the other great Formula One tracks? Oh, I think in my mind, you've got like a perfect blend of it being a historic track, but it's still a good track for racing on. So like what I mean by that is, say, take Monaco. That's a very historic track with all the tradition and stuff like that. But racing a 2023 car there is just much more difficult because of the size of these cars. But I think Silverstone's got that good blend where this track is sort of wide enough and you've got such good races there. So... I think it, it's, I wouldn't put it, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to pick an outright favourite, but I think I'd put that sort of that top five bracket with like Monza and Spa, sort of like that kind of level of track really. I think you often get very good races there and I think it's sort of a track that lends itself to a lot of different aspects of a car really, like whether that's the long straight or tight braking or whatever. But yeah, I, I, just, I love it as an event because it's just, it's in the middle of July, it's, it's the time when, well, I say when Britain's supposed to be warm, it's not always the case, but yeah, like, it's just such a good event. It's sort, it's usually around the halfway, sort of approaching that halfway point of the season, so you've sort of got a good idea of what's happening where, so it's sort of, you can take stock and then get excited for the rest of the season to go ahead. I've had the pleasure of attending a MotoGP race at Silverstone, and that was in late 2016 and it was cold and it was wet and it was damp and we got stuck in the parking lot for five hours after the race which was great and then most recently I was at Silverstone in summer of 2018 and I don't know if you remember but that was that summer where the UK had that scorching scorching heat and everything was dried out and yellow but I thought that was a really great experience to be able to see a Formula One Grand Prix in the heat so I've I've kind of enjoyed both times at both times weather aside it was it was great and fortunately the MotoGP race was kind of like a checkbox in the old calendar of life that I was able to see uh, Valentino Rossi score a podium. And of course, to see Lewis battle for a victory in Silverstone in 2018 was nice. Of course, that was the year that Seb Vettel took the victory after 
after Lewis got spun by Raikkonen at the very beginning of the lap. But all of that aside, my friend, what I wanted to bring you on today to talk about are a couple of things. One, I wanted to go through some of the articles that you've written recently for PlanetF1.com. Would be love to get your your insight into some of these topics. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a story that doesn't seem to want to go away, which is a potential partnership or collaboration between Aston Martin and Honda. Of course, Honda's signed up for the 2026 power unit regulations. They're not committed to an OEM. And currently, and they've got an agreement through 25, Aston Martin's paired with Mercedes. And of course, that's a logical partnership because Mercedes also supplies German-built power units for their road car. So there seems to be some symmetry there. But Mike Crack and Lawrence Stroll in the past have also suggested that, hey, we would be open to exploring our own power unit. But they've not submitted the paperwork to suggest that they're going to do it themselves. And then I'd love to do some way too early, way too early scorecards based on everything that we've seen through the first three Grand Prix. So the first article I'm going to pull up here is something that you published on the 16th of April, and it states, support for Andretti still in the minority as key meeting date looms. Maybe, if you will, take us back a little bit on this story. I think we've certainly talked about this. I think our listeners recognize that there is some, there is some maybe not animosity, but there are certainly some friction between the majority of the teams and the idea of a new team joining the grid. Where do you think this stems from? And what do you think needs to happen to overcome this? Because I think maybe to the frustration of Formula One, FOM, Liberty, the FIA did initiate that expression of interest process, which kind of implies that, yeah, we're open to doing this when maybe some of the teams, most of the teams, and the commercial rights group aren't on board with that. But what what would have to happen to eventually get this Andretti Cadillac bid across the grid, in your opinion? Mm. So I think it's great that you mentioned that, because obviously, I think when you think of F1, it's quite easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, it's just one body, like everyone's on the same page. But no, it's... I think in terms of sport, it's just so split up of who has a voice. So obviously two main players, you've got the FIA, who's sort of the governing body, they deal with the rules, they do the stuff like that. And then you've got F1 slash FOM, which is like, they own the commercial rights, that's who Liberty Media own. So like you said, there's been a big split currently of FIA seem much more keen to get teams like Andresi on the grid, whereas FOM, not keen at all. And I think it boils down, as it always does, sort of money really, like... The FIA want it because they want to get more competition. They want to get more teams involved. They want to get, I think, the fact that it's an American team as well. I know we've got Haas, but Andretti's sort of really selling itself as this big American team. It wants to sort of get get used to that market, really. Whereas the F1 teams and FOM, they're sort of worried that any team that comes in, obviously they're going to get a share of all the prize money and all the stuff like that. So these teams are more concerned that, okay, we're going to lose out on more money than a team like Andretti are going to bring. And um, so that was the argument when Andretti first sort of became interested i don't know it's it's over a year ago now it's sort of the start of 2022 where their their interest really solidified i think them getting general motors on board was i think in their mind that was the last step really because they were saying okay fair enough we're we're andretti we've got got a good racing name but perhaps we haven't got that oem behind us so getting someone like general motors is huge really like it's one of the biggest car manufacturers on the planet obviously so i think they were thinking okay that's going to open the door to us that's going to let teams show that we have this value but for some, for whatever reason the teams are still being very hesitant of saying mm, still not entirely sure like i think it is to do with money i think 
these teams are I know they all I know everyone involved in F1 gets paid a load of money but they still want more kind of thing they don't want to see their profits get diluted and like if there's no obvious reason I think and one of Van Jesse's big selling points is oh well we can tap into that American market but I think F1 teams would argue that they've already done that really you think we've got three uh three American races and then five North American races this season like I think there's a good point to say that okay we've already done it like we've we've already tapped into the American market more what more could you possibly bring kind of thing um so yeah we're just sort of in this standstill really like we've had this FIA process which was announced in January but then yeah I think by the end of January teams would and Again, it's not just Andretti. But we've got to remember there's, there's a lot of teams behind the scenes sort of working to get these bids in. So even though Andretti are the most f- vocal of them all, like there are other people interested in getting involved, getting involved into F1. So we're in this process now where they do this expression of interest. We've had no real date from the FIA on when we can expect that process to, to come to an end. I think I've been told it's around May time. So maybe the next few weeks we might get an answer if they've passed this process. But that's very much only step one of the hurdle, really. Like... From there, they've arguably got to do the more the harder task of trying to make the FOM and F1 themselves sort of get on board with it. I think I'm still I'm still not negative, but I still don't I don't still don't think it's going to happen. Really, I think there's just such such a not such a backlash from the current F1 teams. I feel like they're just they're not shifting, they're not budging, and I think it's going to be very hard for Andretti, even if they do have the FIA support, to get on the grid in my mind at least i think you've teed that up beautifully and i think what we can expect to see whether it's may or potentially june is there's just going to be a backlash of of negativity and anger from fom and this team because presumably the faa may come forward and recommend a specific bid that hey we've done our analysis we've done our, our back study we recommend that the Andretti Cadillac team receive a place on the grid for 25 or 26. And of course, that's going to excite that team. And we all know exactly what the reaction is going to be from Formula One. And the vast majority of the teams is, no, it's it's not going to happen, that we're not open to this. And it's all about, like you said, the anti-dilution of profits, which is kind of stems back to the 2020 drafted Concord agreement. And in the 2020 Concord agreement, we talked about this on the last show, a new team on the grid needs to pay a $200 million expansion fee or anti-dilution fee to the other teams to offset the presumed loss in prize money that they they would lose out on because you're now splitting the prize money 11 ways instead of 10 ways. And I think if you ask the teams, they think that, and I think even Stefano Domenicali acknowledged this recently, that $200 million is certainly not appropriate given where F1 is in 2023 versus at the peak of, of COVID. But on Honestly, like even if that number was to increase to $80 million and you talk about dividing that 10 ways amongst the current teams, $20 million from a $200 million anti-dilution fee is a drop in the bucket in the world of Formula One, especially to the bigger teams. So is $80 million. That $80 million is a couple years of prize money at the very most that that number needs to be astronomically higher. And the more we talk about this, the more unlikely I feel that we're going to get to that place. And I think you make that other really great point about, hey, look, Andretti brought a OEM. They, they've signed up to bring an OEM, but one of the two teams that's supporting, that is vocally supporting the admission of Andretti Cadillac, aside from McLaren and, and Zach Brown, is the Enstone-based Alpine Renault team. And the reason that they're backing it is because they're the team that would supply the power unit. So it would presumably be a Cadillac-badged power unit coming out of France. So are, are they really bringing an OEM? Like, what, what, is, what is GM's technical contribution here? Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, if you think of the current power unit suppliers, so you've got four of them, obviously, and it's just Alpine who supply just themselves at the moment. So that's not a great advert, and that's obviously 
it's costing them a lot of money to make these engines and no one's buying them. So obviously they're going to be massively keen to get someone involved. I think during the launch, General Motors sort of hinted they might be might want to get their own power unit supply going, but they gave no real timeline on that. Like it's one thing to make an F1 team, but it's another thing entirely to make a power unit supply, like become a power unit supply. Like that's just ridiculously expensive. You need so many more parts. You need so many more staff and stuff like that. And all that, all that adds up really. So I think maybe if Andretti get on the grid and we see them solidify for maybe a couple of years, then we might hear that, oh, maybe they do something like Red Bull where they sort of say, okay, we're in the sport now. Let's make our own engines. But yeah, you're right. It's it's no surprise that Alpine is sort of pushing this forward because they at the end of the day they want to, they want to get another customer and like we're saying these F1 teams are going to lose out on money. Yeah, but for for Alpine they're going to make a lot of money having Andretti as a customer team. So yeah, I'm not surprised that they're one of the two along with McLaren pushing for this deal to get over the line. One of our listeners slid into our DMs a couple of moments ago, and this was a perfectly timed question, but wanted me to ask you uh, aside from Andretti Cadillac. What other teams, organizations, financial entities have you heard about that you could kind of comment publicly on um, are working on a bid? Because obviously Andretti Cadillac is very vocal and they're in everyone's faces, marching up and down the paddock in Miami with a sheet of paper, trying to get people to commit to their project. But are there other groups that are probably less vocal, but probably equally as as capable or competent? What have you heard on that front? Yes, that's the thing. We obviously had this process, but... The FIA haven't said how many people have submitted their applications, really. Like, so it's it's very much down to which teams are most vocal. Like you said, Andretti decided to go public. I think they thought that would work in their favour because they'd hope they'd get a lot of support from the, the general public and race fans, which, which has worked largely, like, a lot of people behind their bid. I think, for me personally, I know that a team called Pantera are trying to get their bid involved. So they're an Asian-based company. They were sort of... They're using like, sort of that Andretti argument that they can expand, but they're doing it from Asia, saying there's been a lot of focus on the West, which is, is true. But I think they're saying, that, OK, there's more expansion to be had in, in Asia. So maybe maybe that bid might be a bit more attractive to the current F1 teams. But yeah, currently it's just those two that have been at least publicly said that they're trying for it. But we're in that phase. I suspect when the, the bids come out, there's going to be a lot more that we weren't expecting and a lot of teams that we've probably never heard of but just they've got the funding they've got they've got the desire to be on the grid so yeah that wasn't much of an answer I'm afraid yeah there's only another one I can name but yeah it's just they're very secretive at the moment which is which is fair enough I suppose they're, they're doing their due diligence but yeah I wouldn't be surprised if we were something like five or six teams trying to get on the grid very cool I want to pivot now to a story you wrote uh, also on April 16th and it's titled Daniel Ricardo outlines his terms and conditions for a F1 return in 2024 and the quote here is from Daniel Ricardo, I am still at a point where it's not at any cost returning to F1. It's not just to be back on the grid. A lot of the reason for taking this year off was that I didn't want to jump back into a car, any car, just to be one of the F1 drivers. And I still don't see myself starting from scratch and rebuilding a career and going at it for another decade. I appreciate I might not have every opportunity under the sun, but I want to win. I want to be back with a top team and obviously a team where I have my confidence back in my mojo. I think also that's where maybe when I look back, that's a weakness of mine, but in a way, it's a strength as I feel better at the front of the grid. I feel like I perform in those situations with a bit more pressure and a bit more emphasis on a podium. And he concludes, so to go back and try to put myself in just any seat or something that's fighting it best for a top 10 finish, I don't think that's going to bring the best out of me. So yeah, I see myself, at least in my head, wanting to go back on the grid, but there's still some terms and conditions 
so to speak. So my friend, he he obviously exited unceremoniously from McLaren, despite the fact that he was under contract for the 2023 calendar year. He's now without a job, uh, functioning as a reserve driver back in the Milton Keynes-based Red Bull organization. What are your thoughts on these comments? And is he potentially being a little bit too standoffish, guarded, conservative about with whom he would compete next year? Presuming there's any opportunities at all. Yeah, I love Danny Rick, but I think that is quite optimistic. Like, if we think of his career, like, obviously he had such a good start at Red Bull. He was doing amazing. And I think he moved to Renault. And personally, I think he did quite well at Renault. I know a lot of people sort of use that as a stick to bash him against. But you think in his last season, he was getting podiums at least. Like he really, really transformed that team. They took him right at the grid. So I think I would count the Renault days as a success. And then obviously, we all know the story of what happened with McLaren. Like just for whatever reason, he didn't gel with the car. He just found it more increasingly frustrating. So when he left the sport last year, his stock was perhaps at the lowest it's ever been in his career. Like... There weren't a load of suitors willing to willing to take him on. I think Haas was obviously the most vocal, but for whatever reason, he thought, I don't want to race that that low down the grid, really. He still wants to be challenging for, for podiums, if not wins. But I do think it's a bit optimistic to try and think that he might get a seat at a top team next year. Because if you if you look around, if you say, so you've got Mercedes, so unless Hamilton retires, they're, they're going to be fully butts. And like I think even if Hamilton did retire... Why would Mercedes go for Ricardo, who's like 33, 34, is getting up there? Like, I think they're much more likely to go all in for someone like Lando Norris, who's got youth ahead of him. Ferrari, both their drivers are signed up for next year already, so that's pretty much a no-go straight away. Um, the romantic move would be to go to Red Bull, but I think Red Bull, as much as they were happy to bring him back as a reserve driver, I think they are very smart about their decisions. And I think, why would you get rid of Sergio Perez when he's, doing the job he's supposed to do really he's contracted for another year so there's it makes doesn't make much sense to give to give that unknown and put ricardo back in the car um even his old team alpine like you could both say that they've got two young drivers who look good and like there's no chance really of ricardo slipping back in there and then of course you've got aston martin like uh, alonso's contracted until the end of 2024 Lance Stroll is Lance Stroller. He's not going to get sacked, is he? Because his dad owns the team. So, yeah, I think the option's just straight away. There's not a lot going for him if he wants to be on a, a top team. Like, he's going to have to either sit out another year, and then that's two years out. That's a long time out of F1. Or sort of accept it, like, swallow his pride a little bit. And I think even if even if you're at another team such as Haas, like, there's no shame in being at Haas, like, is you can still have a lot of glory there like we saw Kevin Magnussen last year getting that pole and like he can still perform well there and I think that you, it's better that you're on the grid because the more time you spend off it the more you sort of fade into obscurity other drivers come through who've who get more track time than you are so yeah I think him getting a top top seat for 2024 in my opinion is just quite unlikely and I think if he doesn't accept it to race for a air quotes lower quality team then I think He's going to find himself again this time next year without without seeing. Yeah, I agree with everything that you're saying, and I think the other, the other thing that <clears throat> I think the other thing that resonated with me as well was Gunther Steiner had been quoted a couple times about their brief conversations with a potential tie-up with Daniel Ricciardo, and I think Daniel Ricciardo was pretty clear that he wasn't interested in racing for a team like Haas in the 2023 calendar season. But it also seems like 
Daniel Ricardo was asking for a lot of money from some of these teams. And at least in Gunther's case, like, look, even if he wanted to come here, the money wasn't going to be available to pay him. So it's it's kind of a, a really challenging situation. And I very much agree with you that two years off the Formula One grid works against him in every conceivable way in the sense that other drivers on the grid potentially become more established and those that do struggle um, are often offset or replaced by young drivers coming up through the Formula One development series through F3 and F2 and there might be a driver primed to take a seat in 2025 that is barely even on our radar today and I think that's very very dangerous for Daniel Ricciardo so I think if if he's motivated and he wants to have an opportunity to compete in Formula One um, I know he talks about beggars can't be choosing he, he kind of has to be that he's he's been with Red Bull and it's unlikely like you said he's going to get a seat there very unlikely he's going to go back to Alpine Renault very very impossibly unlikely that he's ever going to race for McLaren again so right away 30% of the grid is functionally off kind of off the list it, it makes it really challenging for him and I think if there's any opportunity with any team he needs to jump at that and maybe he can build that into an opportunity that like you said if he goes to Haas and he's successful and he scores some points and he outperforms his teammate you know maybe that helps build his resume and he becomes more attractive to a big team but right now Daniel Ricardo's stock is at an all-time low an all-time low it's trading it's almost going to get delisted like it's in a really bad place and he needs to build up his stock so he can become a more attractive option to one of these one of these bigger teams. And like you, I, I love Daniel Ricardo. I, I love his personality. I love seeing him around the track and I would love to see him in a car. My friend, the, the next article also from April 16th, you were busy that week, man. You were so busy. Uh, this busy this is week. a story, story that caught my attention because it's from a period in my life that is, is very romantic in that it was the early 90s and by the early 90s, I was living in Canada full time, but every summer, my parents would put my brother and I on a plane and ship us over to South Devon. And we'd spend the entire summer in South Devon at my grandparents' house. And our week was beach, 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 beach. Um, it would be doing the weekly shop. It would be going to the news agents to get the latest issue of Beano. It would be kind of putting together your your Panini Premier League football album. But every single Sunday entailed two things, one of which was uh, a Sunday roast and the other was watching formula one but back in 1993 we didn't just watch a lot of formula one we were watching an awful lot of Indy, a lot of the IndyCar World Series, and that was because there had been a shock move at the end of 1992 that saw the reigning world champion exit Formula One and head over to Indy. Maybe share a little bit of the backstory that led to Nigel Mansell exiting Formula One, despite being the reigning world champion in 92, and how he came back to Formula One, how that manifested itself. Yeah, I think Nigel Mansell's career is like a fascinating one. Like, he, he was just the way it worked out was a lot of luck and a lot of like bad timing, a lot of good timing. So like he was getting up there in age, he was getting a bit frustrated. He'd never managed to win the world title. And like, he was pretty much ready to quit F1. He was, he was, that was it. He was done. Like, I think he even said he's retired. I think he was off on holiday. And then Frank Williams rings him up, asked him to come back. And then I think that it was never quite revealed what his, his requirements are, but both men admitted that Nigel Mansell came back of a list of requirements, which were, almost impossible like he wanted to be number one driver he wanted this this and this and i think he almost did that maybe as like oh yeah he's never going to give that like i can say that oh he denied my thing rather than me choosing not to to race anymore but even though frank williams initially came out and said that we can't do that apparently three weeks later he changed his mind so <laughs> nigel mansell gets brought into williams and of course goes on and wins the world title and like like you said he's, he's out of the sport again like it was a thing 
it's not so much you somebody see really these days, but back during the nineties and eighties, like the politics in in teams were just mad. Like teammates just didn't get on. Like these days, we say someone like oh, I don't know off the top of my head, say of of Verstappen and Perez had a bit of a thing. Like that is nothing compared to what it was like in the nineties. You had drivers <laughs> racing against each other and then going in the press and absolutely tearing bits off their own teammate. Like it was a different world, and like you can only imagine how hard it was to be a team principal at that time. You're thinking, okay, we've had a good race, we've done whatever, and you read what your drivers just said about the other one. You think, oh god, I've got to go back in there now and sort of sort this out. So it was just that really. Like he he wasn't happy with being a second driver. Like I think that Williams was sort of, I mean. Frank Williams was always very a very cutthroat man. He was very, I'm doing what's best for the team. Like I don't care who you are, kind of thing. So that's just sort of what happened. And then yeah, he left and went off, off went off to IndyCar, and like that was it really. Like it's something that I think happened a lot more back then that you had F1 drivers go off to other series. Like it's something that doesn't really happen now. Obviously, we had Kevin Magnussen go off, but that was through lack of a car, and he came back. But yeah, it was just such a weird time that the reigning world champion wasn't going to be on the grid that'd be like i mean the closest example i can think of is nico rosberg obviously who retired straight after winning and that was a lot a big different circumstances i think rosberg could have carried on racing but he just didn't want to so like yeah the, the mansell issue was just bizarre really that the cars are lining up the season after and the, where's the reigning world champion oh he's not here he's off in <laughs> off doing a different competition and we would be remiss to, to not mention as well of course he he wins the formula one world driver's title in 92 with canon williams Renault. he goes to newman haas racing in indy for 93 wins the championship finishes number one which is which is a remarkable turn of events but then he comes back in 1994 and now i i always forget because i always think it was kind of a clean transition back to formula one but it wasn't at all that he was under contract for newman haas and he eventually had to kind of work his way out of that contract so he could resume racing in formula one of course 1994 an incredibly dark year for for the williams racing team how how does that kind of find its way into being that he's he's basically racing the entire championship or most of the championship for Newman Haas over in North America for Indy but then he's suddenly back on the Formula One grid and he completes four Grand Prix for Williams and of course 95 he races for McLaren and which would be his last year in Formula One but how does how does how how does Frank Williams help to negotiate the waters of bringing back to F1? Mm. I think as a lot of things, like time is the best healer. I think obviously emotions are very high. Mansell probably thought his stock at the time was higher than what it was. I think he probably believed he's world champion. He can do what he likes. And Frank Williams is a very stubborn man, as I mentioned. He wasn't going to accept that. So I think he was like, okay, fine, go. But I think maybe when he was winning these IndyCar races, when he was doing so well, he was had one always one eye on F1. He was looking back saying... I don't know. I, I'd imagine it was much worse when it was like still the same Grand Prix and when they raced it at Monaco, you sort of watching it on TV like, why am I not there? Like that kind of thing. And I guess a year on, like both men have sort of simmered down a bit, like calm down, think, okay, let's give it another go. Well, there's, there is a amicable solution to this. But yeah, like you said, he had difficulty coming out of his contract because like, as you can imagine, he's moved to IndyCar. He's probably said that, yeah, I'm going to be here for the rest of my career kind of thing. And then a year later, he's like, oh no, I want to leave again and go back to F1. So his team's probably like, well, great, we signed you signed you for this deal, you're the world champion, and now you're, now you're doing this to us, us, this to us. Like, yeah, it was just, I think Mansell, like I said, has one of the most interesting careers because it was very much up and down. Like he was, he's kind of like an iconic figure, especially in British racing, just, maybe for the moustache, but like other things around it, like 
just who he was and how proud he was and his relationship with Frank Williams. And like you said, didn't end that well in those last two seasons, but yeah, it was sort of part of his legacy really that it was good. That, I think it was good that he came back to F1 and didn't end it there as world champion. This wouldn't be a Scuderia F1 podcast if I didn't try to make some sort of analogy to F or to the NBA, but back in 2010 when, when LeBron James left the Cleveland Cavaliers as a free agent to sign with the Miami Heat, the current present, then present owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers had written a scathing, scathing letter that he issued publicly about LeBron James and about the fact that the team could never reconcile and the Cavaliers will win a championship before the self-titled former King wins one. And of course, four years later, LeBron comes back and and they go on to win a championship in 2016 and the rest is history. But sometimes what seems like an informidable gap or delta between the two parties can be resolved. And I think, like you said, a lot of time, a lot of times it's time that heals those those wounds. Let's take a quick break, pay some proverbial bills, and we'll be back on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. I'm being joined today by Mr. Sam Cooper of PlanetF1.com. And if you've listened to the show, you know that we reference the work of PlanetF1.com every single episode. Sam, the next article that I wanted to speak to is something you published on April 14th. And it says Brazil was the perfect storm for keeping Mercedes down the current concept route, which in turn might still be haunting them now. Talk a little bit about what the genesis of this article is and how how problematic the fact that they had a one-two finish in Brazil that weekend was to the trajectory of the car's development. Yeah, so the quote, uh, the, the story originates from quotes from Turt Wolf himself, actually. So just flashing back to last year, really, like, we all know how badly start they, they started and they persisted and persisted and persisted with this design. They were confident at least they could get some performance out of it. And then as the year progressed, we saw them get better. Like it was never really near the levels of Red Bull and even Ferrari. But that Brazil Grand Prix was just such a turning point for them. But it turned out to be sort of the opposite to a silver lining, really. Like it was sort of a 
a curse really because they thought okay we finally cracked it we finally got some performance out of this car and it was that it was that one race that made them decide to stick with that design this year and like as we've seen from three races in they're already scrambling to make a b-spec car like it's just not proven correct like you would have think that i think if you asked anyone moments after russell crossed the line first is this a bad thing for mercedes they would have said no 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 this is great like this is proven we were right to keep doing what we're doing but it's just proven not to be the case like we've already heard big talk that in imola they're gonna have a car that looks entirely different it's rumored to look very similar to the red bull car and i think a lot of the cars are starting to converge and look very similar to that because it just makes sense really like if a car is doing that well if that's the period especially after these new regulations then the other cars are going to start looking like that but yeah for mercedes like it was very much a false dawn they thought okay we've done this we've we've got all this ready like we've proven this car could be quick as it is let's keep going with it let's plow ahead for 2023 and after three races they realized well even after one race they realized well this this hasn't gone well has it like we have to start all over again like so yeah i think they would have been happy at least they got a win in their season but it wasn't it turned out to be a bit of a curse in disguise really it's something that we've certainly talked about recently and even at the time sitting here as a commentator talking about the sport it really did feel like they had cracked the puzzle they cracked the code but now when we sit here six seven eight months later and we, we sober up after that that race victory you you look at the circumstances that led to that victory it wasn't a clear-cut weekend red bull had a host of struggles getting the car set up it was a sprint weekend a, th- a lot of things worked against the team that was probably best equipped to re- to win that race weekend um, but i think you're right that i think there was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement i like that quote that you had in that article from from Total Wolf as well. And he was, he was speaking about the fact that he was actually already in Abu Dhabi, which I didn't realize. And he basically set up a race station in his hotel room so he could wonder all the analytics and the race statistics. But he, as, as well as I, I think the engineers and everyone back at Brackley and Bricksworth felt incredibly confident that the outcome of that race weekend meant that the trajectory that they were working on was ultimately satisfactory. And I think the other comment that I would make as well is, and I, I know that to a lot of people, watching F1 and maybe they're newer to the sport and there's this sense of criticism that a lot of the team's designs are converging on Red Bull. I I think, and I I heard this on the Shift F1 podcast once before, and it really stuck with me that with times when you work with tight regulations, eventually the engineers just start drawing the same conclusions. So even if they're not taking high resolution photos of the Red Bull and trying to render that in CAD, they're ultimately going to come to the same conclusions because they're the right conclusions. They're the conclusions that help generate the most downforce to the most top end speed. But I think that this is simply going to be accelerated like you said and i think come imola we might have a very different looking uh mercedes formula one car now on the topic of mercedes i wanted to get your take on a story that broke in the last couple of days and that there has been a reshuffling of senior formula one technical por- or personnel uh at brackley james allison who had been functioning sort of as a cto a chief technical officer for the last couple of years is now officially back in command of the f1 technical team on a day-to-day basis after I think roughly two years as the CTO. What does this mean for Mercedes? What does it imply? And what ultimately led to the decision to make this to make this personnel shuffle? It's a confusing one, really. I think Mercedes are just trying to get back to that winning way, really, because if um, he sort of left just as their, their last year. So he left in 2021. And he was that was sort of the last time Mercedes were competitive, really, wasn't it? Like Then you had the 22 regulations. It's just not worked out. So... It was interesting, there's some quotes to him at the time saying he 
thought he'd reached his shelf life in the role. He thought he had nothing more to give, and yet two years later he's back here. So whether he's had a good break and like it was interesting because they made they'd made pretty much made this new role to keep him at the company. Like there wasn't a CTO before. Like they've given this new job, and now two years later he's back doing his old job. So like, <laughs> you've got to think what's the reasoning behind that? I mean, there's been long been rumours that he's been helping with the F1 team, and sort of Mercedes have said no, he's not. He's not doing anything. He's doing his other his separate thing, but. It, I think those rumours may have been had a little bit more truth to them considering he's now back working full-time. My inclination is they're just trying to get back to that winning formula that they had. Like It obviously worked so well during that, that period of like pretty much 10 years when they were dominant. Like Everyone was working as they should. Like The team's just working in sync. So Especially if the car's not doing great, like they'd probably want to get all the other elements around it as good as it can be. And if they've decided that this is the way to do it, then that's the way to do it. And I think... In comparison to another team, because obviously we saw McLaren had quite a big shake-up recently, and I think there's a big difference between Mercedes and McLaren's shake-up. I think McLaren's is very much right, let's just get rid of everyone, and let's start again, let's start fresh. Whereas, and like, they cut so many staff, they separated one role into three, but whereas Mercedes is just sort of a little tinker, like, let's okay, let's just try this, let's see if this works, kind of thing. So I think it shouldn't be taken as a panic, sim- a panic sign, like, Mercedes didn't know what they're doing like this is just a little tweak like okay let's try let's try how it was before maybe get a bit more success out of that my friend our last story here before we switch over to predictions and report cards based on the very early 2023 championship but Adam Cooper over at autosport.com published a story a couple of days ago that spread like wildfire wildflowers wildfire um, and that was that uh, Aston Martin could be looking to switch to Honda or Honda could be looking to partner with Aston Martin in some sort of works configuration for 2026 and beyond. And we we talked at the top about the fact that Renault currently has no customer teams, which is a disadvantage because when you sell engines, it's a source of revenue, but you also acquire all the data from that engine, which helps you with the design and the development. Of course, the engines are frozen right now, so that's probably less relevant, but Mercedes currently has four and Total Wolf has previously said that he would be more than happy to axe one of those teams that he doesn't necessarily see it being beneficial to have three, four customer teams simply because with the cost cap, there's so little income to be derived uh, from selling those power units. But Mercedes is obviously a team that has significant ambitions in the world of Formula One, led by the stalwart, the chairman, Lawrence Stroll. He's clearly shown the world that he's willing to invest in this team. He's invested in the road car division. He doesn't have a majority stake in the road car division, but he has a not insignificant stake. He has near complete control over the Formula One team. They've invested significantly in the Silverstone factory, and you would have been there, and you would have driven right by it yesterday. Um, and he's also been willing to spend on top talent for the cars as well, whether it was Sebastian Vettel, whether it's now Fernando Alonso, that he's doing what it takes to be a world champion. And I think if he sees that the next logical step in the development of this Formula One project is to bring in a internally developed power unit or to partner with somebody who has the capability of doing that on an exclusive basis, he would be willing to do that. Now, what makes this entire conversation really strange is that 
and we talked about this a little bit together off the top, that Mercedes and Aston Martin have massive synergies in the road car side, that the the formula, the Aston Martin cars are assembled in the UK, the interiors are assembled, the switch gear, the infotainment, a lot of the wiring, the gearbox, the, the differentials and the power units are all coming out of Germany. They're all German built. And that's been the agreement that's been in place for a long time. So they kind of emulate that on the Formula One side where the Aston Martin Formula One cars have a Mercedes power unit, Mercedes gearbox and a Mercedes rear end. But what's being proposed here potentially, and nobody from Aston Martin has commented on this yet, but ultimately that Honda, who may, may not be staking around for 2026, is looking for a partner. And if you look down the list of teams on the grid, there's very few potential partners for them. Maybe, maybe McLaren, maybe Williams, maybe they don't want to partner with Williams, who's basically operating on a shoestring budget and possibly wouldn't offer them the financial upside that a partnership with Aston Martin would. But they've been linked now. And I have to ask ask you your thoughts on this and your time around the paddock, your time interviewing people. Is there a real possibility that this could be something that could could occur? And of course, if it does happen, it needs to be inked and in the books quickly because as we've talked about recently, while Audi and Red Bull have internal combustion engines on the test bench and they're firing up these internal combustion engines, in Sakura, they've done nothing in terms of pushing forward their 2026 power unit project. So if this is something that is going to manifest itself, it would have to happen quite soon. Yeah, I think we've sort of reached that point of the year. We're three years out now. A lot of the teams that don't have original suppliers of the power units, like they're sort of shopping around. We've seen this from McLaren a bit, like Zach Brown was pictured going into the Red Bull base, obviously having a chat about potentially becoming a customer for there. So yeah, all the teams obviously have contracts up until 2026, but they're all very competitive. So they're always going to want to get the most, the best engine for them. And I think, I think Honda's a real good prize because if you think, it's, it's okay being a Mercedes customer team, but I think if you're the sole customer of a, of a supplier like Honda, we've seen this with Red Bull the past few years. Like Red Bull have managed to do so well of that Honda engine. I think if Honda had like could go back a few years, they wouldn't have said they were leaving F1 because then this wouldn't be a story. Red Bull would have never decided to make their own power in, power unit. Exactly, like, yeah, exactly. Honda would have continued supplying them and they'd be happy ever after. But we've now reached this point where Honda said, okay, we, we want back in the sport. Red Bull have said, well, we're making our own thing now. We're not interested anymore. So there is a bit of a scramble to sort of see who they can get. You mentioned some of the teams there, and like obviously we've got even more suppliers coming in with Audi coming in from 2026. But I think I just think it's a smart move personally for Aston Martin to get under the Honda brand. We've seen this Honda be, engine be very good because obviously the Red Bull engines currently are pretty much just Honda engines with a Red Bull badge slapped on them, so that they've proven very good, like very quick, and like the sooner the better. Like you said, they get inked on a deal like they can start working with Aston Martin maybe like okay what would you what would suit your car in terms of an engine kind of thing so I think I think it's a win-win for whoever signs on whether it's McLaren I think the, I think those two are sort of the lead front runners McLaren and Aston Martin to sort of get with Honda and sort of become their works team in a way like I think that's whoever does that has got a great opportunity to really really shoot up the grid and I think Aston Martin are a very attractive prospect right now as we've seen this season they're doing unbelievably well they've got a lot of work going on at Silverstone, like that factory is only getting bigger by the day. So I think they're very attracted to Honda as well. So yeah, I think it's a story that doesn't seem to be going away. There's no one from Aston Martin that's come out and said that it's not happening. It's a lot of, yeah, we're very happy with our Mercedes deal, but crucially that Mercedes deal ends sort of before this <laughs> new deal starts. So yeah, I think 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if come 2026 that Aston Martin does have a Honda engine at the back of it. Cool. We will depart the news segment of this podcast now, and we will transition into the juicy part, which is our way too early report cards on the 2023 championship. And I would like to start, my friend, with the rookie of the year conversation. I'm going to kick this over to you. We have three rookies this year. We're three races into the championship. What have you seen and what have you liked so far? I think of all the all the categories you gave me, this is probably the toughest one because I think each driver sort of had his problems. So I think going into the season, I would probably pre- predict Oscar Piastri be the best of them, but we saw how difficult his first race was and like he hasn't had the best time since then. So I think three races hasn't been enough to show that he's the best of them on the grid. I think on the flip side, I think I've been massively underwhelmed by Nick DeVries so far. I know he wasn't a rookie as such, but he's, this is his first rookie full season. But I think his performances just haven't been good so far. I think compared to Yuki Tsunoda, like, yes, the Afatari car isn't great, but Tsunoda seems to be at least challenging for points. Like, he's got P11 of the first two races, and then he managed to get points in Australia. Like, he's very much been outperforming DeVries so far and a lot of people thought it'd be the other way around a lot of people thought DeVries would come in and absolutely smoke Sonoda so like that just hasn't happened so for whatever reason and then I think Logan Sargent's one who's sort of like positively surprised really like going into it again he wasn't someone who had like a stellar junior career like he wasn't someone like Piastri had won championships like there's a bit of hesitancy around him thinking oh was this the best that Williams could get but he has proven himself yeah fair enough he hasn't managed to get in the points like album has as consistently but like He's done very well. So I think if I had to say so far, I think Logan Sargent's been the most impressive so far. Just that consistent performances. But that does come with the asterisk that Piastri's had a bit of a rough go of it so far. And I think a few more races, I think we might start to see his his quality shine through. I definitely agree with your analysis. And we had your friend from the DNF Owen podcast, Adam Burns, on last week. And he was he was walking me back from the edge a little bit on the Nick DeVries piece and continually reminded me of just what a what a what a horror show that car has been so far this year. But if nothing else, the presence of Nick has Yuki performance performing and fighting in a way that I don't think we could have imagined because obviously his career's on the line that if Nick does come and outperforms him he will not have a seat next year and I think he knows that so I think he's pushing very very hard three races in we'll see we'll see how Nick kind of we'll see what he does during the break to put himself into a better headspace and a better physical position to better compete in the the latter part of the season maybe ultimately he can't because the car is just so fundamentally bad from a, a design perspective but yeah I've been disappointed there Logan Sargent like you said I think probably had the least pressure of any of them driving that that Grove designed and built Williams car and I think he's been a pleasant surprise and Oscar Pat Piastri I think will still by the end of the season unquestionably accumulate the most points and, and I think that'll be um, a byproduct of his talent but also the car Talking of cars, my friend, in the way too early report cards for 2023, and I think this is an easy question, it's kind of that softball, the proverbial softball, you know, you come on my 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 talk show here late night in the United States, I got to tee you up an easy one, but car of the year so far in 2023. This is when I say it's the no, I'm joking. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's obvious, isn't it? It's the RB19, like, it's just so dominant at this point, I think. I was trying to think of, oh, can I be clever here? Can I say this car's been better? But I think on every aspect, the RB, if, you, if you're not being biased to, if you're just looking at stats-wise, like the RB19's performed incredibly well at every race. Like we've had, I think I'm correct to say they've had one, two at every race so far. Like there's just been so dominant. Like, 
And there's just talk that they're not even putting it in like 100% yet. George Russell seems to be leading the way that he says they've got a lot more to come, really. And that's only a worrying thing. Like the RB18 was obviously a very good car and like they've just improved on it further. Like, so yeah, the RB19, is, there's not much more you can say. That's that's looks like the most impressive. Like, hopefully, we get a few more upgrades for other teams, especially around Imola, and sort of they sort of start to challenge. But at this moment in time, after three races, like the Red Bull car is just easily the best. It is. It is quite worrying as well that, and a lot of drivers have tipped that this is probably the case that we are not seeing the full capability of that car, and I, I think that's for fear that. If they showed the full capability at race pace or even qualifying, the FAA may feel that they need to step in and start throwing out technical directives and, and updating regulations to bring the pack closer together. And I, I hope we don't see that. But yeah, I fear that uh, we haven't seen the full capacity of that car yet. The next topic, um, and this is probably, there's probably a couple of ways we could go here, but really maybe only one right answer. But the way too early 2023 report card most improved team of the year conversation and you're wearing a green hoodie which might uh might signal the direction you're going but so far this year the most improved formula one team on the grid yeah i think this is as easy as the car was like it's got to be aston martin like as the weeks have gone on like the hype got more and more real like who would have said come the end of last season when they finished p7 that the next race fernando Alonso would be still on the podium like we saw in testing that they looked very good, but even then Aston Martin were like, "Yeah, stop bigging us up. Like we don't want to be, we don't want to be seen for being that quick in case we finish like P six. Like we're doing fine." But yeah, they've just been ridiculously fast. Like it's hard to think of like one team making such a leap in such a small amount of time. Like obviously the, the season finished in November, then come like February, that car was just completely different. Like I think there's a good good argument to say it's the second quickest on the grid. Like I think. It's hard to know where Ferrari are. Mercedes have obviously got their faults, but I think Aston Martin at the moment look like the second quickest. So yeah, they've got to be most improved. Fernando Alonso looks like he was when he won his titles back in back in two thousand five and two thousand six. So yeah, most improved got to be Aston Martin. It's it's not impossible, but it's unlikely that Red Bull will win every single race this season. Meaning that another team. And a non-Red Bull driver will win a Grand Prix this year. Is there any reason to think that if the stars align, that couldn't be Fernando Alonso scoring his first podium in a decade? Scoring his first race win in a decade, sorry. Yeah, no, like, absolutely. Like, I think he's, he's he mentioned this a bit last a few weeks ago, that he's, if if this Perez-Verstappen rivalry, I say in, in brackets, um has a bit more fire and they sort of crash into each other. And yeah, I think he's in pole position really to sort of make the most of that. Like he's, he's consistently finishing just behind the Red Bulls. Like I think if Red Bull do have an off day, like, of course, like you got to remember as well, we have so many different tracks throughout an F1 season. Like they're going to be more used to like an Aston Martin car is going to perform better at certain places than others. Like, and I think if I had to like say one track, maybe like this, this quite romantic, but I think maybe Monaco, because if you think, that qualifying lap, like all you need is one good qualifying lap, and who's going to bet against Alonso to do that? Like one good qualifying lap, and then pretty much the Minister of Defence, as we saw in Monaco last year, like he'll happily hold back the whole grid. He does not mind. Like you just block them off, block them off. So yeah, maybe Monaco is somewhere where we'll finally see that. Was it Mission Thirty Three? Whether that'll be finally come come to fruition? I, I think it's probably too early, but I would be 
I would be doing a disservice to our audience if I didn't acknowledge the rumors of Taylor Swift and Fernando Alonso potentially dating. Uh, not, oh, yeah, no <laughs> neither camp has acknowledged anything, but Roden Track oh wrote an article about the rumors recently. And if Roden Track is talking about a potential <laughs> relationship between the two of them, um, of which there is zero evidence, but boy, would that be a... Boy, would that add a lot more excitement to an already thrilling Fernando Alonso narrative in 2023. Uh, the, <laughs> the next one up here, most disappointing team of the year so far. So I, I'm going to take, I'm, I'm going to put a an asterisk on this one. It can't be Alpha Towery simply because it's not like we had towering expectations for that team anyway. So if you take Alpha Towery out of the equation, from your opinion, the most disappointing team of 2023 so far. So far, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like I was debating about Alpha Tower, but like you said, like I, I, I was one that's going into the season I had that sort of no optimism for them. So like I can't, if I'm putting them P10, I can't be disappointed. Like if they're in and around that area, but so for me, the most disappointing team so far has been McLaren. Like that car's looked way off the pace. I think everyone was excited. It was sort of seen as a new era of this McLaren team. You got Piastri coming in, like teaming up with Norris, like the two well they've got to be the youngest driver pairing on the grid like it was just so much excitement then even in pre-season testing the mcl60 just it didn't look that good it looked looked like it had issues i think the biggest issue is it's just a lack of downforce and like to an f1 car that's like pretty much as crucial as having wheels like you need downforce to go quick like there's they've sort of improved like melbourne was obviously good but they've and they both scored points but that did come with a big asterisk about a lot of drivers further up the grid who would finish ahead of them like either crashed out or they like Carlos Sainz had that five second penalty who shot down the end of the grid it's like I think that has sort of put an asterisk next to them scoring points so they're another team that you'd hope over this break they've put in the work they've done a lot of testing or whatever they need to do to make that car more better performing because I think going into the season their goal was to get back P4 from Alpine and like already that's looking like a tough ask like if you think that Aston Martin have shot up so they're they're going to be in the top four presumably along with Ferrari Mercedes and Red Bull and Alpine has started well like they've they've getting consistent amount of points so a few more races like that and McLaren's hopes of getting on P4 or even P5 are sort of out of it so yeah they need to really turn it around now like I hope they've made the most of this this four-week break like it's a team I quite like I've always I thought McLaren's been the way they go about things like obviously the history of the team so you sort of want to see them do well but the first three races has been it's been little for McLaren fans to be optimistic about and really I think the only other conversation we could have in this category is probably Ferrari and and I I do this not necessarily because it's a good way of getting clicks and and getting people to aggregate the conversation but I think it's been disappointing, and, and I think we've seen a little bit of everything there that's kind of led to the results. We obviously had an unfortunate DNF for Charles Leclerc, who was coasting to a podium in Bahrain. And then, of course, Charles Leclerc beaches the car in, in Australia, so there's some driver error. It, just, it doesn't feel like that team has come together yet. And I think what really concerns me is we're starting to see, or at least I'm starting to sense that there's executive meddling happening in Marinello, where a team principal needs to be given the autonomy to operate that team as he or she sees fit. And I feel like between John Elkin and Vina, some of these other executives are becoming very vocal about what they expect and want out of this team. Um, and I fear that the meddling is probably going to be, it probably won't be conducive to creating the culture and the continuity and the consistency that that team needs to be 
to be successful. And finally, before I, I throw it to you for some predictions for 2023, what has your biggest, and you may have already covered it, but based on what we've seen through the first three races in winter testing, what has been your biggest surprise of the 2023 championship? Ooh, I think... I think they're both Aston Martin related, weirdly. So I think a Alonso just proving that age does not matter. Like he he will continue to be awesome when even when he's forty five or whatever. Like it's just ridiculous how good he is still at this age. But B is sort of a lesser one. That the fact that Lance Stroll was still there, like two weeks after having a massive bike accident, breaking 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 your good wrists one. and your big toe. And if you're thinking as an F one driver, what do you not want to break your wrists and your big toe? The fact that he's able to come to Bahrain, do well, and like he raced those grueling races for two hours. Like I haven't been in that McLaren car in Silverstone. Like, I can tell you how much even being a passenger in a road car feels like your body's like moving side to side. So the fact that he's in an F1 car, able to use, able to do like that's such an amazing recovery. And I think we all saw that video of like just exactly what his injuries were. Like I think when we heard he had a bike crash, maybe he was like. Oh, maybe it's a grazed knee or whatever, but no, it was a pretty pretty serious crash. Like he had a pretty serious injury. So the fact that he was able to rock back up on the grid perform as he did, yeah, that was that was a great surprise. And I think it was good for someone like him, because obviously his dad own, owning the team sort of unfairly paints him as a pay driver. And I've always thought he's sort of a bit better than the likes of someone like Nicholas Latifi or Mazepin. Like I think Stroll's actually got a bit about him. So yeah, the fact that he was there. So yeah, I'd say both both the Aston Martin boys, but for, for different reasons. Finally, before we wrap this up and let you go, because I know it's late there and you need to get set up for the week ahead, your predictions for 2023 for the remainder of the calendar. We are three races down in a 23-race calendar. We kick off again with a sprint race in Baku this weekend. Then it's full speed ahead up until the summer break. And then we've got a very compressed second half or third chapter, as it were, of this championship. Anything you're expecting to see? Any general general predictions that people would find interesting? I'm just going to say, I think Mercedes will take P2 in the championship. I think P1 is quite, obviously, Red Bulls, unless there's a massive, I don't know, whatever. Like, it would take like a meteor to hit their Keen's base for them not to win the championship <laughs> by the looks of it. So yeah, I think Mercedes, obviously, that might be a bit of a crazy shout, but I think they've always been a team that sort of developed well. And I think... With this car, I don't think we'll see it in Baku. I think that's too soon. I think we'll see it in Imola, this highly upgraded car or highly different car. I think that will sort of put them back on the right track and then they then they can really build. And I think we've got to forget, we can't forget as well, there's 23 races in this season. Like, even if you're bad for the first three, you've got a long time to make it up. So, like, if they can get on track sooner rather than later, they've got a lot of time to make up points. And currently there's been, Aston Martin have obviously done well, but, like, there's been no real clear favour for P2 behind Red Bull. Like Ferrari have got their problems. So yeah, I think that P2 spot is probably going to be the most competitive, especially the top half of the grid, like competitive spot going for it. But yeah, I think in terms of the championships, I think that's both going Red Bull's way with Verstappen and the constructors going to Red Bull. But behind them, hopefully it's a bit more interesting. I have to remind myself sometimes as well that I, I still, you did as well. We grew up in a world where 15, 16, 17 races was the Grand Prix Championship. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about, hey, there's 20 races left in this championship and we're already three down. So incredible. My friend, where can people follow you? Where can they check out your work online? Yes, I'm Sam Cooper underscore on Twitter. So that's sort of where I post all my uh, tweet, all my stories and stuff like that. So that's where it goes. I'm also on F, um, Instagram. So it's Sam Cooper F1. I put a lot of my silverstone stuff up up there yesterday so if you want to see more of that and yeah and obviously planf1.com so like that's my my main home really that's where i'll be 
That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. For everyone listening at home, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back on Friday with a race preview in the weekly news show leading into the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. If you like what we do, if you like this show, if you like our guests, please check us out on Spotify. Give us a rating. It means the world to us. And if you listen on the Apple podcast ecosystem and you can give us a rating and a roof, that, that also is so important to both of us. Once again, thanks for joining. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like Songum and my songs gon' break through like a running back.